be reading Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It's uh, page 850 in your pew Bibles. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever, <clears throat> whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard, when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, as we just sang, for each and every day that you give us here on earth. That we may seek out that we may seek out people to share the gospel with, Father. Father, we thank you for Christ and what he has done for us, how he died on the cross for our sins, Father. Father, we thank you for our church body and how much they mean to each other and how much we are able to serve each other and our communities, Father. We pray for Pastor Cody as he comes up to deliver his sermon. And we thank you for him. Father, we thank you for the glorious day that we, we have today and that we're able to come here and freely worship you. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever studied photography or just ever observed a picture that you thought that picture is really beautiful, it, it, it really seems to, to, to capture the centrality of the scene. When I look at the picture, my eye is just, is just drawn to the center of the picture. And if you sort of back away from the picture and you, and you think about how someone actually took the picture or created the painting, 
you realize that a lot of the reason why your eye is drawn is due to the light in contrast with the dark. In fact, oftentimes when you see a good picture, especially a picture of a landscape or something of scenery, you'll have a dark foreground, that which is seemingly closest to you as you observe the picture. You'll have a light middle ground or the center of the picture, that that which they want your eye to be drawn to. And then you'll have a darker background. This morning as we approach this text, this is very much the way this text is structured. We have a, a dark foreground. We have dark plans about how we might destroy Christ. Now we, obviously, they, the chief priests and the scribes. And we have a dark background of dark and boding background even. Judas, who has decided he would be the man the chief priests and scribes needed the most and betray Christ. But in the middle is the light. And I would submit to you this morning, I think it's so bright, our eyes cannot help but be drawn to it and even observe the beauty of it. And I think that the reason that the writer Mark this morning puts this passage together as he does, as he structured it with dark, light, dark, he does so to draw our eyes to the middle. This is not a chronological passage. What we find in the middle, the light, is not chronologically taking place in sequence with what happens before and what happens after the light. So we have this morning... A scene painted for us by Mark to draw our eyes to the light. And I trust we will see it in all its glory. We see a plan of destruction in these first couple verses. And yet it's just the dark foreground to this beautiful display of devoted worship. If you're taking notes this morning, I would recommend uh, three points to the passage. We have verse 1 and 2. An action to destroy. An action to destroy. Point number two, which is verse three through nine, we see an action of devotion. And finally, verse 10 and 11, an action of disloyalty. Or if you want to break from the D's, an action of betrayal. Let's set this scene. Look with me at verse one and two. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover is well regarded to have been on Thursday in this year. And so we're speaking, the scene is set on a Tuesday. Passover would have taken place on the Thursday, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a week-long celebration, remarking their their, their time of exiting from Egypt would have started on Friday morning. Two days before that, chief priests, the scribes, we we have met these men before. This isn't the first time they have sought to destroy Christ. They have been seeking to do that all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6. We saw they didn't like what Christ had to say, and even at that time began plotting his destruction. In chapter 11, the tension seemed to grow even thicker when Christ cleansed the temple. They didn't like that too much. Chapter 12, when he began pointing out the difference between them and this widow who had only but two small coins, the tension grew even thicker. And you notice they are not uh, blatant men. They're 
seemingly crafty and their desire to destroy Christ. They're trying to do it by stealth. Some commentators think that the city of Jerusalem would go in the time of festivals from about 50,000 people to 250,000 people. A five times growth. Think of driving through Fredericksburg on Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. and then driving through Fredericksburg on Tuesday evening in the middle of the summer. A lot more people on the street. And yet, in the, in the middle of the bustle, you almost get the picture of this room. Uh, maybe away from the, the crowds, off, off a corner street. And, and in that room, kind of dark and musty, a little bit of light, there's men in there plotting the destruction of the Messiah. In contrast to maybe 250,000 people there to celebrate the coming Messiah, which they often didn't even realize was in their midst. We won't spend much time on this point in action to destroy, but it must be noted. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Since Genesis 3, when the serpent came and, and tempted Eve, and, and there was sin that entered into humanity, and the promise that the, the serpent would, would bite the heel, and yet the heel would crush the serpent. We have seen, we, we see throughout the Bible a continual pressure and push to destroy God's plan, to overthrow God's plan, redemptive plan to redeem all mankind, to, to redeem mankind to himself. And so we see it pick up in, in Saul versus David. Saul uh, sitting on his throne and, and David playing a harp and him getting angry and Seeking to play darts and pin David to the wall. And yet God intervenes and David escapes this promised line that Christ would come from. We could fast forward all the way to the book of Esther where Haman seeks to destroy all the Jews. And God intervenes with just a person and just the right place at just the right time. Or we could go to Matthew 2 and see where Herod seeks to kill all the firstborn when he hears of this Christ child that is to come. And yet God intervenes and his redemptive plan carries on. Here in a few weeks we'll find the pinnacle of what seems to be the enemy's win, the cross. Finally we have God's redemptive plan crushed out. And yet that day that seems most crushing to God's redemptive plan is actually the day of great defeat for the enemy. Psalm 33, verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. Brothers and sisters, let this passage be an anchor to your soul this morning, if for nothing else, to know that God's way, God's plans, God's good way and perfect plans cannot be, cannot be thwarted by anyone. At all, period. Period. There is, there is no human power that has ever been or ever will be that can thwart the perfect plans of God. And you can know as a believer in Jesus Christ that that plan is perfect and it is good for you. And it cannot be changed. 
His, his good plan for you cannot be changed to a bad plan for you. And yet we see here men that often try to thwart God's perfect plan, but they cannot. Now, if you're a, a grandfather or anyone who has spent a, a decent amount of time telling a story, you know that the best way to keep someone engaged in the story is to, is to set the hook with a cliffhanger. Kind of leave a scene what in what seems to be the middle and... And jump elsewhere. And that's exactly what happens here. We have a, a cliffhanger here. We have this, this back room council of darkness. And it seems as if there's this cut in the scene. And we move. And we move to not a council of, of moral or attitude of darkness. We move to actually what probably was a dark night. Let's look at point number two. An action of devotion. We're now two miles Away from this scene of this uh, of destruction, and we're walking along a road in a little town called Bethany, and dusk is falling. And like any good American, as you walk along, you're kind of looking into the windows, not snooping, but observing what is going on. And you note a party, what seems to be a dinner party. And as you kind of pass by, you hear the, the, the joyful sounds, the murmurs of, of laughter and of, of kind words to one another. And you observe that it's a small group, probably close friends, a warm candlelight, intimacy. You observe it's the house of Simon the leper, who was probably the leper, but no more. Because this man, we can assume, has healed him. Whoever this man is. And as you're, as you're, as you're looking in the window and you're seeing this intimate group, 14, 15, 16 people maybe, maybe a few more, you see a woman in the corner, not really engaged around the table, but, but gazing and looking upon one man who's on an elbow probably eating. And this woman, all of a sudden, moves from the corner And taking what is a small vial, breaks it. And all of a sudden, as you as a passerby are observing what is happening, you get hit with this aroma. And and you're struck by the thought of what happened. What is that smell? This is in somewhat, this is some way the scene of what is taking place here in verse 3. We know that this this person, this woman that is in the corner from John 12 is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. And we would know that she has spent much of her time the last few years gazing upon Christ, sitting at his knee, learning of him, in even contrast to her sister, Martha. But what we need to recognize is that Mark doesn't mention who this woman is by name, and he does that for a purpose. Because it's really not important for us to know who it is, if it's Mary or not. What's important for us to know is what she did and to whom she did it to. This flask that she takes, this alabaster flask, was a a thin, white, almost translucent type vase. And oftentimes it would have a, a very thin neck and, and so thin that you could just snap off the top. Inside this 
thin vase or flask was pure nard. And I don't know much about pure nard. You can go read about those things. If you do, you'll probably find yourself somewhere in the Himalayas uh, looking at a dried root and the leaves and they would make this very pure fragrance that was just very was very earthy and rooty and pungent. Uh, while studying this, I ran across one uh, thought that the amount that she poured would have would have would have been enough to create ten thousand bottles of Old Spice. If you don't know what Old Spice is, stop on the way at Walmart and buy yourself a bottle of Old Spice, and then just pour it out in your house, and you're going to smell it for days. One question would be, how did, the, how did this woman get this flask? We see it's an expensive one, worth a year's worth of wages. The text doesn't tell us, but more than likely, this type of ointment was so precious, it was actually regarded as a family heirloom, something you would pass on down. In fact, a woman of Mary's type would have used it probably for one of only two reasons, either for her dowry when she was wed, or two, she would have left it behind to her family who would used it for her burial. It's a, a legacy, if you, if you will. And I want you to note, as she, as she breaks this and, and pours it over, she doesn't just drop a little bit, knowing the expense. She pours the whole thing. She breaks the bottle. There's no use for it any longer. And she pours it over Christ. And, and John 12 says that she poured over so much that she anointed his feet. And here we see in Mark, she anoints his head. The point being, there was enough for his whole body. And we see what Christ, how Christ responds. First of all, uh, those that are around, which we'll see here in a minute, respond quite indignantly. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 4 and 5. But I want you to notice first, in light of their scolding, how Christ responds in verse 6. He, he responds in three different ways. There's probably more, but at least three. To a seemingly simple act of devotion. If you and I were to take a, a list and say, we're going to make a top ten list together this morning of things to do that will last as acts of devotion to Jesus Christ. This one wouldn't be on it. Maybe go to China and start an orphanage. Create a, a benevolence fund and build an apartment complex to help underprivileged. Build a school for those who can't afford. I mean, all kinds of things, but not something that's seemingly over in a moment where she just breaks something and pours it out. Notice how Christ responds to this seemingly simple act of devotion. At least three things I would recommend. First of all, he defends her. He defends her. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? He defends her. And he will defend all of those who are his on the great day of judgment. Those who in this life now are judged for their seemingly religious impropriety, Christ will stand and defend on that last day. A simple act Christ defends. Even today, a simple act of devotion to Christ he will defend. Second of all, notice he praises her. Still in verse 6. She has done a beautiful thing 
to me? Why, why did Christ defend this woman and actually say that she has done a beautiful thing to him? And it's precisely because he realizes that she valued him above everything else. You remember in Mark 12, at the end of Mark 12, we have this scenario, this scene in the middle of the temple where this very poor woman comes and gives everything. And Christ says, look, she's given more than any of you because she gave everything and you're giving out of your abundance. And that's exactly what Mary does here. She gives everything. This is just a simple flask and yet it's worth so much. It's her, it's her earthly possessions. You know, you and I could, 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 could wake up tomorrow and say, we want to be all in for Christ. What's our backup plan? You know, let, let, let's, let's give away all our money, but let's keep that nest egg as a fallback. You know, if it all goes south, we, we can rely on that. We got at least a year's worth to keep us. That's not what this woman did. She gave it all. She, she not only valued him above her earthly possession, she valued him over her reputation. If we were walking by and we saw that flask being broken, we would have gone from seeing a nice, murmuring, wonderful, candlelit meal to animosity. What are you doing? What a waste. And everybody that she observed as her friend all of a sudden turned on her. She did not value her reputation and even she did not value her future. This, in many ways, was the representation of her future. At least of a decent burial. It stands in contrast here or or in comparison with or building on the widow's mind. The widow's might gave very little and you could imagine yourself saying, well, I can at least give two coins and yet this woman gives so much. The argument being, I think, for the whole text this morning, from verse 1 all the way through verse 11, is that the beauty of Christ, the beauty of Christ is such that the Christian who gazes intently upon him will pour out their life unashamedly that the beauty of christ is such that the christian who gazes intently will pour out their life unashamedly we'll discuss that more in a minute last thing christ does here in the simple act of devotion he recognizes her complete giving she has done what she could her giving is not practical if she had come to us this morning if she had come to the board of deacons in a church and said you know i'm considering doing this they would have said you know ma'am that's a little over the top i really don't think you need to go all in a three or four drops would probably suffice we would have told her it would have been unwise 300 denarii, this is a year's worth of wages. I have no doubt that you men in here love your wives very much, but I also have a pretty strong doubt that any of you looked at your wife and said, Honey, all the wages of this year, I'm going to buy you one gift. And if you do, I'd, I'd like to meet you afterward and just kind of stare at you, take it in. Wow, that's an act of devotion. In our day, this could have been worth as much as $30,000. This isn't the perfume bottle you go down to Walmart and buy. This isn't even on the shelf in any store. This is the one you ask for that they keep in the back of the vault. And they took it out and she breaks the whole thing. 
This thing is of great worth. She gave it all. We would note, as we have noted before, that the economy of Christ has never been worldly practical. You don't give it all. You got to keep a little bit for yourself. You don't die to self. Self is important. The economy of Christ doesn't make sense to the world that is around us. Why would we give everything and go serve an unreached people group in Mexico, Evan Took? Why would you give up heavy six-figure salary potential, Ed Underwood, to go create technology to get the gospel to groups that you can't go into physically? It doesn't make any sense. The economy of Christ has never been worldly practical. Notice the indignant response of the disciples. We know from John 12 as well that this was Judas, but he wasn't the only one. He probably chimed up first. Everybody else jumped in. This word indignantly, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sense of scorn, almost as if you're snorting that. Huh, I can't believe this woman. And yet there's this hypocrisy in the middle of it. They, they, they roll out in a lame excuse. We should have sold this for the poor. We know that Judas wanted it not for the poor, but for himself. He's the one who took care of the money bag. He's the one who pilfered the money bag. He's the one who had his hand in the money bag. One for us, two for me type thing. J.C. Ryle in his commentary on Mark, the Anglican bishop, says this, The spirit of these narrow-minded fault finder is unhappily only too common. Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's visible church. There is never lacking a generation of people who depreciate what they call extremes and religion and are incessantly recommending what they term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. But if he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He's beside himself. He's out of his mind. He's a fanatic. He's an enthusiast. He's a righteous overmuch. He's an extreme man. In short, they regard it as waste. Close quote. Notice Christ doesn't have some utopian view of complete poverty eradication. For you always have the poor with me, verse 7. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. As if sometime there's going to be poverty that's gone. No, he's simply saying, you, she's giving to the poor. And we say, she's giving to Christ. Yes, she's giving to the poor. Remember, Second Corinthians. He who was rich became poor for us. In actuality, what she is doing is very much giving to the poor, exemplified in Christ. We know that Psalm 41, verse 1 says, Blessed is he is the one who considers the poor. In fact, we know that Scripture teaches that we're going to always have the poor and that the heart of the Father is for the poor and therefore the heart of the church will always be for the poor. The church is the one in many ways who started things like hospitals and helping the poor. And we continue that on today. And Mary here is doing that as well, giving to the poor. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. 
And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And that's happening this morning. 2,000 years or so after she has done this, her faithful act of devotion continues to be told as an example. In fact, the inclusion of this story in the gospels is testimony to the prediction of Christ coming true that this will be in the story of the gospel. I don't know if Mary knew that Christ was two days from his death. Three days from his death at this point. I don't know. Commentators disagree. Some think eh, she probably didn't know what she was doing. Some say that she probably did. I tend to think she probably might have known what she was doing. She's the one sitting at the knee. She's the one who seems to be listening a little more than everybody else does. Who knows? But what we do know is that the burial of Christ is impending. And I want you to know that Christ is not speaking of his burial in some cold, heartless light. As if this is the end of it all. Doom and gloom. No, he's actually noting it in a positive light. Christ has has spoken of his death repeatedly. And yet it's always been almost exclusively in the light of also the glorious resurrection. Chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 9, verse 31. Chapter 10, verse 33. Christ pronounces his coming death, but he also, also says, and three days later, I will rise again. In fact, we know that the burial is glorious because it falls in the shadow of the glory of the resurrection. Well, we have an act of destruction. We have an act of devotion. And now we have an act of disloyalty or an act of deceit or an act of betrayal. Verse 10 and 11. Judas, this man who was desired by Christ in Mark 3. Judas, this man who, according to Psalm 41, verse 9, was close friends with Jesus. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Judas, a man who was called to preach in Mark 3. Who was trusted in Psalm 41. Who blended in so well with the twelve, that at the table, Lord's Supper, when Christ said... One of you is going to betray me. Judas wasn't looked at. They didn't know who it was. Only Christ did. He hid his hypocrisy so well, no one looked to him. Somehow he was getting away from dipping into the money bag. And he goes to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. His love of money Again, in stark contrast to some of the passages we studied in Mark, the rich young ruler, Mark 12, his love of money drives him and he bargains for 30 pieces of silver. Exodus 21 tells us that's the price of a slave that was gored by an ox. A little bit of money. And he he bargained to destroy, to be disloyal to Christ. There's still Judases around. It seems as if uh, almost every day you can read on the news another pastor that gets exposed 
for their hypocritical sin, their hidden sin that no one knew about. They looked so good. And yet their exploitation of the sheep for their gain, whether it's financial or sexual or power, comes out after years of doing this in the dark. All of us have probably known people that maybe have even sat in the pew with us and then we wake up one morning and we say, he did what? Only you know really what your thoughts are about Jesus Christ this morning. You came to church. You're hearing me preach about Jesus. But only you really know what you're thinking about Jesus. We can all put on the duds. We, we can all walk. We can all sing. But we can also all be really good actors like Judas. Let's wrap this up. Where, where does this passage leave us this morning? I thought about this this, this week. Who do I most imitate this week in this passage? Am I the chief priests and scribes? Am I Judas? Am I Mary? I don't know. I see a little bit of all of it. Some weeks I see more of Judas and I wish more for Mary. Some weeks I'm grateful for more of Mary and yet I still see a tinge of this. What about you? You walked in here this morning. You know what's happened this week. There's people that know what you did this week and there's people who didn't. There's people who don't even know what you thought this week. But I I want us to just pause before you try to figure out who you really are and I want to ask the question, what's the connecting point between all three of the characters? And that is Jesus. He's the connecting linchpin between all of this. He's the king that we behold. Behold your God. Behold your king Jesus sitting on a throne. But that's not what we see here. We continue to see the, the, the radicalness of the gospel. King Jesus associating with traitors and thieves and lepers. Jesus, friend of sinners, loved us when we did not love him. Loved us when we were dead. Loved us when we were little devils. And he came. And he came and he walked among us. And he did not come to make us better versions of ourselves. To give us, quote, our best life now. He, he, didn't, he didn't come to, to, to help us be more popular. He actually came to kill us and give us new life in him alone. Jesus is not about us being better me's. He's not, he didn't come to just make me better. If he, if, he, if he came to make me better, it's a failed course. Because I, I, I can go today and find many things that will make me a better person today. But will kill me for eternity. No, Christ has come. He loves us enough to call us not to be better me's, but to die to ourselves and be not interested in myself And what Jesus can do for me. But to be interested in him. 
and how we might live in order that he might be made much of. What about you this morning? Consider Christ. We're going to be called here in a few minutes at the table to examine ourselves. Let's do that now. Let's examine ourselves this morning. Are you in Christ? Has you has he saved you? Has there been a rebirth that has been accompanied by a new desire? A new ability to follow Christ? Are you following Christ? Is it a wholehearted following? Is it a reckless even need be following of Christ. See, we really have this morning the tale of two very different people. Both of which have testimonies that have survived almost 2,000 years. One's a tale of devoted worship, simple devoted worship. The other one is the tale of hypocrisy and betrayal and deceit. It doesn't, he's not asking for much. He's just asking for all of you. And when he asks for all of you, he doesn't ask you to go do everything. He just asks you to be faithful and where he's at, where you're at. When's the last time your devotion to Christ cost you something? Cost you a job? Cost you a friend? Cost you time? Cost you money? Brothers and sisters, let's do what we can. Simply, faithfully. It doesn't have to be earth shattering. Let him take care of that. It may not be much in the eyes of man, but let's do what we can for Christ. It may even be despised in the eyes of man. But what does Christ think about it? We've argued this morning from the text that the beauty of Christ is such that the Christian who gazes intently will pour out their life unashamedly. So how are you doing at sitting at the knee of Jesus and and just gazing upon his goodness toward you at the cross? How are you doing just opening the Bible very simply and saying, wow, me a sinner, now a saint? He is altogether lovely. What happens when a Christian gazes at the beauty of Christ intently? They pour out their life unashamedly. And you know what? That pouring out looks very much like getting doused by 10,000 bottles of Old Spice. Because when you walk out of the building... 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 17. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. Brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to be. Simple, faithful, devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And you can see how Christ rewarded the act of one simple woman. Let me close, but with a quote. Some of you have heard of the man C.T. Studd. He was one of the seven men of Cambridge who followed Hudson Taylor's call to China. C.T. Studd was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He was the stud of the day. On the athletic field, in high society, he was multi, multi-million dollar rich in our and our understanding of riches today, and yet he gave all of it away. Except a bunch. He kept that for his wife, whom he married three years after he gave it all away. And he gave that to her at their wedding and said, this is for you because I'm following Christ and when I die, you're going to need something. He married the wrong woman. She said, no, we're giving it all away. 
And he gave every bit, she gave every bit of it right after him. And they served faithfully Christ in China and India and other places. And he read a poem one day and he took that poem and he wrote this poem. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What about you this morning? Children, if I could have your ear for a second. I remember when I was seven years old, sitting in a church like you and watching a a missionary and thinking, I want to be a missionary one day. 20-something years have passed. And I can tell you this. What you do from now to my age, you can waste a lot of your life. Or you can follow his example. You only have one life. You're not guaranteed to make it to 33 or 63 or 83. But you're guaranteed what you have right now. So will you give your life for Christ? The world's going to tell you waste it on video games, Facebook, fidget spinners, all those things, right? Listen, I'm not against Facebook, friends, video games, or fidget spinners. But it won't count for eternity. You only have one life. Only what's done for Christ will last. We sang the song this morning, for every day, may this be our prayer, I have on earth is given by the King, for I will give my life, my all, to love and follow Him. May that be our prayer this week. Let's pray. Father, we have been given one life. And it's going to be passed soon. And we want to be those who are faithful in just simple acts of devotion because of Christ who didn't do a simple act. He did an eternal act to save us from our sin. We rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. Father, may our prayer be that which CT continued to write. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy our sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Focus on Christ. Thank you, Father, for focusing on us and loving us to save us. We pray that as we come now to the table, we might remark upon Christ until he returns, remarking with joy the gospel that has saved us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.